Well, I want to begin uh, this message. Oh, you can turn your Bibles to Galatians. We're just hang tight. If you get to Galatians, you'll be in the area. Title of this uh, message comes out of one of the verses of the passage we're going to look, look at. God sent forth His Son. But there's been a phrase uh, that's been kind of uh, bouncing back and forth in my mind and in my heart um, the longer I have looked at the thoughts of this passage. And uh, if I hadn't already chosen that, I probably would have uh, said, God sent forth His Son and His coming has changed everything. God has sent forth His Son and His coming has changed everything. Well, I know you're awake out there, but not by your amens. (laughs) Let me ask you a question. What do you do when someone you love who professes faith in Christ is being drawn away by other things? What's the best way to respond to those who once seemed to love Jesus so much that nothing else seemed to matter? But now, these same people seem to care more about other things, external things, things that don't matter, so much that love for Christ is no longer the thing, is no longer the thing. It's one of many things maybe, but it's not the thing that carries them along in all they do. What do you do if that's you? What do you do if you've just if you just set aside the powerful love of God through Christ for you for everything? And you just find yourself trusting in this or that or this person or this thing? What do you do? How do you respond? You know, in one respect, folks, there's nothing new on earth. There's this this question and the situation it poses is not new. It's not unique to those of us who are sitting here in the worship center of Rock Valley Bible Church this morning on the first Sunday of Advent, 2008. It's not new. It's old. Been around. It was, it, was, it was afflicting our brothers and sisters in Galatia. They were dealing with the same thing. Let me, let me just... Uh, you can write these verses down and maybe look at them later. Galatians 1.6 Paul says, I'm amazed. He writes this to the Galatians. I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who want to distort the, great, the gospel of Christ. Now, dear ones, what they, they weren't leaving the church. They were staying in the church. They weren't coming up in the, coming to church and saying, I want this point of the doctrinal statement changed. They weren't doing that. What they were doing was far more difficult than 
the problems that are caused when somebody leaves the church. Far more difficult than when somebody insists that the doctrine that the church holds is wrong and needs to be changed in its written form. See, the problem for them was that they, 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 they just lived a different way. They lived a life that was based upon something other than the powerful love of God through Christ to equip us to provide everything we need for everything. You know, I almost think like Galatia and America are one. <laughs> you know, you think about the way we go through electoral processes. You know, a, a, a person running for office can vote this way, vote this way, do this thing, do this thing, do this thing, do this thing, do this thing. Now they're going to run for office and, and, and they start talking some other way. They just start saying something else. And so when their opponent comes to them and says, oh, wait a minute, uh, um, what you're saying now doesn't match what you've done. And because we are the way we are, we're just gullible. What a person says is everything to us, not what they do, not how they live. We say, oh, well, I guess we can't. I guess that's right. I guess that we can't hold them accountable for that. It's what they say, isn't it? It's what they say now, isn't it? No. No. It's what we do. It's what we trust in. It's how we live. It's how that works itself out. It's so much harder to see. It's so much harder to, to pull the, 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 the error because it's, it's, it's wrapped up in the fiber of how a person interacts with other people. That's the problem in Galatia. So in 3.2... Paul says, and you heard me read it earlier, this is the one thing I want to find out from you, Galatians. See, he's trying to get at the thing. What are they trusting in? Did you receive the spirit of the works by the law? By keeping the law or by the hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Well, it was by the hearing of faith if they're in Christ. Are you so foolish, having begun by the spirit, you now being perfected by the flesh? Now, I don't want you to miss this. Here is where... you. We, the Galatian church, differ and take a different road than what Paul takes. In that situation, Paul has a way he deals with people who, are, who say they're following Christ, but they live on the basis of something else. And as Paul has said, they've, they, have, they are deserting Christ. Now, they aren't saying so. They don't come in and the name tag when they come to church doesn't say deserter of Christ. It doesn't say that. Just the way they live is that. Now, the guy right here, this guy right here, I know what that is. I know what that is. That's where I live. I'm right there. The struggle that I face every single day is to think and speak and live in such a way that it's clear Christ 
is the passion of my heart, the love of my life, and that upon which I trust apart from any other. Do you know that territory? You've been there? You know that struggle? See, this isn't just Galatia. This isn't just somebody else in the pew here. This isn't just somebody else who's gone and somewhere else. This is right here. Now, you know how Paul responds to this? Every time. Every time. We can see it in every pastoral epistle he writes. His response to that problem is different than my response and yours. His response is, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to paint a picture of Christ and what He has done as He died on the cross, as God raised Him from the dead powerfully, as He ascended to the right hand of the Father, as He's praying now at the right hand of the Father for His children, and even looking ahead to the day that we'll be standing with Him. He paints that picture again and again and again because He knows something. The beauty of that picture of who Christ is and what He has done and what He is doing is the thing that's saved in the first place. It's the thing that we'll retrieve in the second place. It's the thing that we'll live on day after day after day after day. And when we fail, and we do, when we fail, you know who we're going to go to then? We're going to go to that one, aren't we? We're going to go to Christ and we're going to say, Father, I know how much you love me. I know how much you love us because you sent Jesus to die so that our sins could be forgiven. I've sinned. Please forgive me. And he said, glad you came. I will. Not only that, I'll give you all that you need. See, this view of the cross, this view of Christ, this view of what He's done and what He is doing is spectacular in its beauty. I have never seen the Grand Canyon. Maybe some of you have. But some people have told me that the first time you see it, it's like, (gasps) (gasps) the beauty is so staggering. This makes that look like a burned out light bulb. This is everything. So in our passage this morning, Paul is doing just that. The Galatians have, have, just by the way that they're living, have deserted Christ. They have come up with, and they're preaching, by the way they live, another gospel. Now, if you asked them, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, I see the gospel right here, do you agree with this? They'd say, yes, of course I believe it. I agree with that. They just don't live it. Dear ones, this morning, Paul is again going to paint this picture and it is going to be what we need to grab onto so that, so that the picture that we paint of the gospel by the way we live will be consistent and powerful in this world in which we live. Our passage, Galatians 4, 1-7, uh, is here to help the Galatian Christians put their arms around the true gospel. To help them think right about what has happened to them and what impact that God intends for that to have on their relationships with each other. 
Now let me read Galatians 4, 1 to 7. Are you there? Galatians 4, 1 to 7. Now I say, well, in fact, I want to read it from, well, I've got it laying down there, so I'm not going to do that. Now I say, as long as an heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is the owner of everything, but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, and his coming changed everything. I'm sorry. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons, because... You are sons. God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. All right. Two questions. We want to, that this passage is going to ask maybe many more, but at least these two. Exactly how did slaves become sons of God and heirs in the family of God? And secondly, how did slaves receive everything from God for his people? Well, verses 1 to 3. Just take a quick look here. The other translation I read for, from earlier says this. See, there's a little bit of a word bridge here from the end of chapter 3. The end of chapter 3, Paul says, And if you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise. And it's like that word heirs, just it becomes a word bridge to another thought, or an actually an illustration of the previous thought. Think of it this way, he says. If a father dies and leaves an inheritance for his young children, those children are not much better off than the slaves until they grow up, even though they actually own everything their father had. Interesting picture. See, in the, in the world of the first century Galatia, an underage child whose parents were rich, this child is named in the will... But Paul is saying, until that child gets to the age that the father set in the will for him to receive everything, he is really not much different than the slave who works in the field for his father. There, and, and, it's, and it's got a particular point of, of similarity. Neither the underage, the child heir or the slave has access to the family riches. They don't have uh, decision-making power over what's going to happen to those riches. Verse 2 says, "They they have to obey guardians until they reach whatever age their father set. Uh, Children in this room, in the Bible, children progress to manhood, womanhood, especially boy children, because we see this worked out in, in the Scriptures. In Judaism, a boy became a man on his 12th, birth, 12th birthday. 
Okay? Uh, but in Greek culture, a boy became a man about 18. So which one are we going with? Yep, that's right. And, but under Roman law, they had, the Roman culture had a variation on that. It was the discretion of the father. It was the discretion of the father. Seems like that's the thought that Paul might be picking up here. That he's not really grabbing onto the Judaism 12th birthday or the Greeks 18th birthday. It's the father's discretion. He kind of knows. The father knows that child well. He knows when he'll be able to handle the freedom to all the inheritance of the, fa- of the fathers of this family and the, have the decision-making power to use it wisely. So, until then, though, Paul says, the error in, in, in painting this picture, the error has guardians and trustees who have authority to make these decisions for the error. Error. H-E-I-R. Sorry. Until the date set by the Father in the will. Now, imagine with me. Imagine with me. It's one year before the date set in the Father. The, this boy is going gonna, is gonna to inherit everything, but it's a year from today. Actually, a year from tomorrow. Can you imagine how this son would look forward a year? His mind would go forward to the date set that, that, that for him to be free of the authority of those guardians and trustees one year before the child might... Uh, it, that day, if the child went to the guardian and the trustees and says, you know, I have an idea of what we should do with my father's wealth. And the guardians and the trustees would say, no way, Jose. No, you're too young. You're too young. One year from today, not now. And as he laid his head on that pillow that night, he might have thought, what good is all this wealth if I can't get at it, if I can't use it? But one year later, one year later now, he's laying his head on his pillow again, but tomorrow, everything's going to change. The next day, before the courts, in probate court, in the official place where the transaction, where the transfer of that wealth comes to that child, that child will no longer be like the slave anymore. He'll have access to the wealth. He'll have decision-making power about how to use that wealth. Can you imagine that that night the child would talk to his guardian and say, you know, I think I want to go back a year. No, he would never go back. He can't wait to have freedom and access and decision-making power over all this wealth. Verse 3 in this other translation says, and that's the way it was for us before Christ came. We were like children. We were slaves to the basic spiritual principles of this world. Hmm. See the situation, there was a similarity between this young heir who's not yet old enough to have possession 
there's a similarity between that picture that's been painted and Christians in Galatia, first century Christians, and the bondage that they were under. And he describes it as the elementary principles of this world. Or one translator says the spiritual principles of the basic spiritual principles of this world. Well, what's he talking about? What's he talking about? Before Christ came, they were slaves. They were in bondage. Well, if we had read all of Galatians up to now, and if we read the rest of it, we would know that right at the top of that heap of the basic spiritual principles of the world was the law that God gave to Israel, to the Jews. But there was something that the Jews began to think about that law that was incorrect. You see, the law was never the way to freedom. In fact, in chapter 3, verses 22 to 26, we're not going to go back and read them, but if you went back there, you'd say that you'd see that the law is what kept them in custody. And it kept them locked up, as it were. To try to be pleasing to God through the best that they could do in their own strength. And see, Paul is going to say, everything is about to change. Everything's changed when Christ comes. You know, back in the law, the law says of itself, if you obey the law, there's blessings for obedience. If you disobey the law, there's what? Curses for disobedience. Now, and here's the real backbreaker. If you, if you break one part of the law, you are guilty of all. Now, let's be clear. Let's be clear what we're talking about here. We're talking about the law as a, as a means of being reconciled to God, a means of being saved was never given to God's people for that purpose. It was given to show them that there is something that would be true of them. That they are lawbreakers. That they are sinners. Verse 8 of chapter 4 says that back then, before Christ came, you didn't know God and you were slaves to those who were no gods. You didn't know God, you didn't know the real God, and you chose gods that weren't gods at all. Now, that's bad enough. The law kept them in custody. It was their tutor to say to them again and again, you're a sinner, you can't change yourself. You're a sinner, you can't change yourself. You'll never be able to do this because if you violate it in one Peace, you're guilty of the whole thing. Now, why was the law doing that? What did God want to happen? It was their tutor to say you can never get to salvation. You can never be reconciled to God going down that path. Can't get there. Can't get there from here. Now, there are some who said, but wait, 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 Frank. There's more than Jews in the church at Galatia. There's Gentiles in there too. Yes, there are. Church of Galatia was a mixture. 
probably Orthodox Jews, uh, believing Gentiles, and Jews and Gentiles who were there but in need of a Savior. Paul, in another place in, in, in Romans, says about the Gentiles, and listen, this, this hits home with us. He talks about Gentiles who haven't been given the law of Israel. But you know what they do? They make up a law of their own. But they can't keep the law they make up of their own. Now, we do this. We make up our own law. Anytime you've said about something, that's not right. That's just not right. That's wrong. If, if you're not talking about something that's in the scriptures, in, you know, okay, but you're saying that's, that's wrong, that's not right, you're making up your own law. And what Paul is saying, you can't keep that one either. You can't even keep the law you would make up yourself, the one that your own heart cries out with passion. That's wrong. You can't keep that one. You break that one too. So it doesn't matter. You break the law God gives. You break the law you make up yourself. What are we? What were those Galatians? They were slaves. They were in bondage. And there was no way out. There was no way out. Except, how is it that slaves like that are made sons of God. How does that come about? We'll look at verses 4 and 5. But when the right time came, when the right time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent Him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that He could adopt us as His very own children. Now, I want you to see something here. Part of the beauty of this picture Paul is painting, you can't paint this beautiful picture without painting how bad the slavery was. How thorough, how, how completely they were held in slavery to the law of God or to even the laws that they make up for themselves. They're just in bondage. You've got to get that because it's the rest then of these 4, 5, 6, and 7 that is the good news part of this that makes this whole thing one of the most beautiful pictures. When, but when the right time came. You, you, your mind almost goes back to the story of that underage child. He wasn't going to get free access to the inheritance, the decision-making power over it, until the debt date set by his father. Now, in this picture of the coming of Christ, but when the right time came, God sent his son. Now, we're not, we don't really know what made it the right time. Well, there's a lot of speculation about what made that time the right time. We know that in God's wisdom, it was of all the times that Christ could come, it was the right time. Now, 
historians speculate, Christian historians speculate, they say, well, the Roman Empire was the controlling force. They, they set up a common language. It would be easy to dis- disseminate the message of the coming of Christ. The Roman Empire not only had this common language, but they had, had this wonderful road system. It made travel so much easier than it had ever been. The message of Christ could be taken to the ends of the Roman Empire. There was something else that was characteristic about the Roman Empire. Remember the end of the Roman Empire? It was spiritually debased. Sin had, had come to new lows. The debauchery, the sin of the Roman Empire had gotten so bad that even pagans were saying, this is not right. Something's got to change. Maybe all of those things made it the perfect time for God to send His Son into the world. We don't know. We do know this. God says it was the right time. It was a time chosen by God the Father to send His Son. And we celebrate that this in the next four weeks here. We're going to understand why. So the when, of, the when question here is, at the time set by the Father. Well, what did He do? What, the, what did the Father do by sending His Son? God intervened. God intervened. Do you know what, folks? Anytime, God, anytime someone's saved, it's because God intervened. How can you say that, Frank? Well, because Paul has just made clear to us. What were we before God intervened? We were enslaved. And there was nothing we could do about it ourselves. God intervened. He intervened in a way that effectively and completely brought salvation. Jesus was God's Son. He was divine. Jesus was God. See, God sent forth His Son. He's God's Son. He's divine. But He's born of a woman. He's also human. Fully God. Fully man. He's born into Israel. By the way, kids, on your kids' notes, some of those words don't have the right number of blanks. So that I just knew how smart you were. You'd figure it out anyway. Okay? So, just warn you. Okay? Jesus was God's Son. He's divine. Jesus is born of a woman. He's human. He's born into Israel. He's born into the line of the promise that had been made to Abraham that through Him one would come through which all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He was, Jesus came and was born under the law. He was obligated to fulfill it. In fact, as you see Him on the cross... He's on that cross because He's obligated to fulfill the law. He's on that cross because He's fully identifying with sinners under the curse of the law, enslaved and in bondage who can't get out by themselves. He fully identifies. And while He's there on that cross, the Father pours out all the sins of all His people on His Son and chooses that moment to pour out His wrath on His Son for the sins of His people. 
Dear ones, if you're in Christ, you are a son of Abraham. You are a child of God and all your sins, past sins, present sins, future sins, were placed onto Christ. God poured out all his wrath for all of that sin on his son. And the result of that, dear ones, is that God can be merciful and gracious to his people, to his children. He's obligated to fulfill it, the law. He fully identifies with sinners. And he fulfills the intention of the law. What was the intent of the law? To lead sinners enslaved to Christ. When you see him on the cross, you say, that's Jesus filling the intention of the law. So that we will be led to Christ. Why? Well, to redeem those who are under law. But to pay the price that had to be paid. By the right person paying it. To pay the price that set them free. Set them free from their enslavement to sin. Set them free from the curse of that sin, death. Set them free from the law in this sense. Set them free from the law as a way to be reconciled to a holy God, to be saved. And to provide a legal basis for our adoption as his children. You know, it would have been enough. Wouldn't it? It would have been enough if he'd have just he just freed us from our enslavement to sin, from the curse of death, and and for and from having the law being removed from our thinking as a way to be reconciled to God. That would have been enough. Yet it's so much more. The pictures that Paul is painting is greater. You see. He came so that we could become legally His child. In the, in the courts of, 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 of the world, of the courts of heaven, justice has been done as His Son has died. And now, if He wants to adopt as His children those same sinners who were enslaved, He can do that. And, dear ones, now, we're, we're freed and we're legally His and now we have status. We have access in the courts of heaven. We've got, think of it this way, we've got freedom of the house. Freedom of the house. It's all ours. God sent His Son to make us His sons. God sent His Son to make us His sons. Wait, I need to hear something right there. Amen. See, when Christ came, He changed everything. What does that look like? What does that look like? Well, look at verses 6 and 7. How slaves receive everything. And because we are His children, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. 
And since you are His child, God has made you His heir. So, how do those who were slaves receive everything? God sent forth the Spirit of His Son. Interesting, isn't it? That's a, that's a, unique, that's a unique turn of phrase. Sent the Spirit of His Son. Describing the oneness of the Spirit of God and the Son of God in the mission of God to save the people of God. And as and one of the you say, how do you how can I know if I'm his child? Okay. How can I know if the Spirit of God is in me? What does the Spirit of God do? He prompts the children of God to cry out in prayer, to cry out to him for help, for what they need, for what he has, for what they are they now own. Abba, Abba is an Aramaic term. When Jesus was on earth and teaching, he often spoke in, in that language, Aramaic. It's, Abba is the Aramaic, Aramaic, I can't say that right, Aramaic word for father. It's a very familiar word. It would be somewhat like the way your children might have called you dads when you were when you, when they were younger, daddy, dad. It's a it's a personal. It, it's a it's a, you know the the Jews, the Orthodox Jews in particular, uh, saw God as being far removed from them, so far removed from them that they would not say his name. His name was Yahweh. And they'd be speaking about God and they'd come right up to the place where they would use the word for God and they just wouldn't use it. They, they wouldn't speak His name. They, they were afraid that they would, uh, they would be guilty of, uh, of taking the Lord's name in vain. And so because of that, they just would never say His name. Well, that's one way to do it, Right? But Jesus Christ, that Jesus, God sends the Spirit of God who prompts His children, the ch- children of God, the children who have been redeemed by Jesus and adopted into the family of God. Now the Spirit of God comes and prompts them to do something they think they can't, they've got no right to do. To, to say, Daddy, Father, I need... See, they're a child of God. They can do that now. This is a term of personal, parental love and concern. Better than the love of any human parent. More giving than, than the love, than the heart of love of any human parent. You want to see the heart of a human parent? Look at a mother. And the degree to which she goes to provide for and care for her infant. About every two hours, no matter what she's doing, she devotes herself to the feeding of that child. Now that's, <laughs> in one sense, that might be the easiest part of it. But her whole life is like that. But this is better and beyond that. 
And, and so in verse, in verse 7, Paul writes, And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. And if you're a son, then you're an heir in the NASB. If you've got the New American Standard translation, maybe some others, there's two words at the end of that verse. He is, and if a son, then an heir through God. A son and an heir through God. You see, it had to be that way, didn't it? It had to be through God, by His Son. Because before that, we had been enslaved, in bondage to sin, and we could not do it for ourselves. It's describing a new aspect of their relationship with God through Jesus. Whether a Jew, whether a Gentile, whether a man or a woman. By the way, culturally, both of those never went together. Men, women, never went together. The man was always. But now, man or woman, Jew or Gentile, all come to God through Jesus Christ by faith in His work. We have full access through prayer. Prayer is the way we receive everything. And God even gives us the Spirit of God to prompt us. Go ahead, ask Him. Go ahead, call out to Him. Go ahead, ask Him. He'll give it to you. You're a child. You're an heir. Whatever He has, you have. Why? Paul? Here's the question that's always there. Paul says, why would you ever want to leave that for anything else? Let me ask you this question. Is your prayer life what you want it to be? Is your prayer life what you want it to be? Is your prayer life such that in every day, for everything, you're, you're living as, a, as who you are, a child of God, a son of God, an heir of God. You find yourself in a difficult situation and the first thing, the Spirit of God is right there smiling. Ask Him, ask Him, ask Him. Maybe a better question than is your prayer life what it needs to be is from God's point of view, would He want you coming to Him more? Depending on Him more. Let's draw this together. Conclusion. What's the purpose that our Heavenly Father has for bestowing all of this wealth on His children? What's his purpose? Well, it's a kingdom purpose. It's so that we will say to the whole world, God sent forth his son and his, son, and his coming has changed everything. Like what? Like what? I want to give you three things. And these are three things that are right here in the letter uh, from God to the churches of Galatia. Galatians 4, 28-31. You don't need to look there. I'm just going to mention it to you. But you can go and look. You see, it's, it's this 
It's this access to the riches of our God in, by faith in Christ where we cry out to Him. This is, this is what you can have because you're a son and an heir. And what you can have is the ability to no longer live in, uh, in the energy of the flesh. To have the flesh control what you think, what you say, and what you do. Have you ever done that? Parents, have you ever done that? Have you ever dealt with your kids when the thing that you said was completely the energy of the flesh? It was completely driven along in anger. Would you like to... Would you like to know how God's, God wants you to avoid that in the future? He wants you to remember the cross. He wants you to remember what His Son has accomplished there. And He wants you to remember that God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your heart that prompts you to cry out, God, Help me this time to trust you and not my anger. To trust you and not my frustration. To to trust you and not intimidation. Help me. Because we are children of the promise. Paul is saying, you've been born in a miraculous way. Not an ordinary way. There's children in this room. I see a mom standing in the back holding a little baby, a child born in an ordinary way. Just the way babies are already bo- always born. Okay? Just the ordinary way that children come into the world. But we have been born in a spiritual way, in Christ, in a miraculous way, according to the power of God in Christ. Live like it. It's in that power. We, we can cry out and say, God, help me to trust you. Help me to trust you. Help me to trust you to say no. Help me to cast out my flesh and to walk free in Christ. To do what? Galatians 5, 13. If you went there and you read it, you'd read that He hasn't given us, lavished all this on us so we can just consume it on ourselves and in the energy of the flesh. He's given it to us so that we can serve one another in love. Careful now. Careful. Careful. Some of you thought, well, I'm okay. I finally got to a point I'm okay on. Because I'm a servant. Oh. But you only got the first half. So that we can serve one another in love. See, he's not just calling us to service. Pagans can serve. We served before. This is a service in Love. In love that we've been overwhelmed by. The love of God in Christ. In the love of Christ that we have received lavish on us day after day after day. That He says, now, if you, if you want, if you ask me, I'll give you all you need to lavish on that guy too. On that child too. On that, on your wife too. So much so that they will say, where'd you get that? Haven't seen that before. Where'd you get that? And you're going to say, let me tell you. Let me tell you. I'm a, ch- I'm a son. I'm an heir. I've received the Spirit of God as a gift. And God uses the Spirit of his, of his Son to prompt us 
to pray and to ask. And so this, this word has to be in our vocabulary. Abba. Abba. Say it with me. Abba. Daddy. Abba. You tell me I'm your son. You tell me I'm your child. You tell me I have everything you have. I know there's some, some person I'm going to see today. I'm going to have to deal with them today. They've... I can't deal with them in, in what I, with what I have, but I know I can with what you have. Would you give it to me? I'm going to need it at noon today. Would you give it to me? What do you think? He will. One last thing. How far does this go, this service of love to one another? How far does this go? Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Even to those who sin against you. Even to those who sin against you. Paul writes, gently bearing this burden of reconciliation and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Think about that. Think about that. How far does this go, this serving in love? How far does it go even to be sinned against? so that you can cry out to God, God, give me what I need to respond in gentleness. Give me what I need to respond to paint the picture that Paul has painted of a Savior who loves, of a Savior who took all on Himself so that you could pour mercy out on me. And in doing so, you fulfill the law of Christ to give to those who don't deserve it just as he gave to you who didn't deserve it. And at the end of that chapter, verses 9 and 10, and to do that without ever saying, that's enough. That's enough. I'm, I'm too tired to do this again. I can't do this again. They'll think they can get away with it. No more. I give up. Why not? Why, why can't you give up? Why don't you need to give up? Abba, you know I'm running out of strength. Abba, you know I don't have it. There's no gas in the tank. But I know there's gas in your tank. I know that you can give me endurance. You can give me hope. You can let me hear you say, in due time, you will reap a harvest if you don't get weary and give up. You ever done that? You ever gotten weary and given up? What happened? You said, I'm going to do what I'm going to do and the best that I can do in the energy of the flesh. And when that runs out, that runs out. Galatians, we're doing that. We do too. God has given us direct access, a red phone, hotline, wireless phone, uh, bars in every place, you know? So you can always get a hold of them. Father, help me again. Father, help me love. Help me be patient. Help me be kind. I know they don't deserve it, but I didn't deserve it and you dealt with me that way. Now, dear parents, we've got a workshop coming up, probably right after the first of the year. 
It's called Christ-centered character development. Not character development. Christ-centered character development. It takes what we've been talking about here and it fleshes it out in the way you interact with your children. You see, for many of us as parents, what Paul said to the church of Galatia, I'm amazed you're so quickly deserting him for another gospel would be what he would say to us in the way we discipline and instruct our children. In the way that we live with our wives. You see, we need, the reason we need all this lavish wealth is so that we can say no to our flesh, so we can serve each other in love, and so we can do that even when we're sinned against again and again. What is that? That's the true gospel. Can you say amen? Now, we've uh, put together a little uh, Advent devotional guide for the families of our church. Or, if you're single, there will be one for you. We're going to put them on the back table. Take one per family. What this is, this is the first Sunday of Advent. The devotional from uh, for today, for this week, focuses on several passages of Scripture. One of them was this passage we just looked at this morning. And so there's a list of some questions to think about, some things to talk about together with your family. On the opposite side of the page, the one side is how you can focus your family so that they're looking at the coming of Christ that changed everything. The other side is a missions focus. Missions focus. So we're not just praying for ourselves and our families. We're praying for the progress of the gospel and the establishing and strengthening of churches all around the world, especially those that have where there's been a direct connect to the to the life of this church. And so there are prayer requests each week to pray for. There's a devotional guide there each week to do that. We want you to pick one of these up on your way out. It's a way for you to focus on the coming of Christ that changed everything. Can you say amen? Let's pray. Father, Abba, during this time, by your Spirit, you have pointed your finger, you have touched on the, on the sorest points, the places that we have responded in a fleshy way again and again and again. You've touched on them so that you could say, now, dear, dear son, dear heir, cry out, Abba, and I'll, I'm the one who changed everything. I'll give you everything you need so that the gospel will be seen by your wife, by your husband, by your children, by your brothers and sisters in the church, by the people that you walk with in in your workplace all week long, so that this Advent season, the gospel will shine clear. And we cry out to you and say, God, we love that idea. Help us. And we know that you will. And it's in Jesus' name who is our Savior. Amen.